15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, thanks for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me, as always, is astronomer-at-large Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Very good to be here. I'm always glad to see your smiling face when we kick off with a, with a, a Space Nuts recording. Thank you, sir, and congratulations, episode 250. Who would have thought it? <laughs> I, I, when we started, I did not know if this venture would turn into anything, and yeah. I'm just so stunned yeah. and 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 um, humbled by the, the the global support that we get. Uh, it, it's it's been a real joy to, um, to 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 connect with so many people, not only via the podcast but via social media. And to be able to um, swap messages and, and jokes and, and mm-hmm. just learn a little bit about the people who uh, who, who love astronomy so much and uh, yeah, it's it's a thrill and and of course we're not stopping now it makes it sound like we're we've come to the end but we haven't no we'll keep on keeping on <laughs> what we're going to do when episode, we get to, to a thousand though when we get to episode um, one thousand or five hundred well or... I think by then they'll probably be digging us up to see if we want to do any more. <laughs> Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hale and hearty. Uh, I've I've just spent a lot of money on my teeth and my knee. I want to get good value for it. (laughs) And I just built a putting green and I I plan to use that for at least 30 more years. Yeah. Yeah, What a waste of money if if it's, you know, quite sit there and look forlorn. Uh, today we will be answering audience questions. That was the original plan, and we've got questions from Cassandra, Ryan, Graham, Paddy, and Alyssa, Ralph, Andrew, and Mark about all sorts of subjects. But we we had one interesting combo question from two different people who don't know each other, but they're both sort of asking the same thing. So we're going to do that as a single double question. Don't ask me how, but we're going to we'll play them both at once so that they're talking over each other. Actually, I can do that. But anyway, uh, we'll, we'll do that. But uh, first, Fred, um, some very, very sad news, and that is uh, the death of Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins. I heard the news this morning that he'd uh, passed away at the age of 90 after a battle with cancer. And you know, he was part of the reason I got so interested in space and astronomy and space travel. Uh, I was inspired to go to NASA. As soon as I saw Apollo 11, I always thought I'm going to go there and, and see this place and learn more about it. And um, I think my my favourite moment was going to the Saturn V display at NASA in, in Florida and seeing that Saturn V rocket hanging from the ceiling in its various stages. It was mind-blowing. And, you know, uh, Michael Collins was a part of the reason that that happened because... And he's probably part of the reason this podcast is happening because he um, he was just one of those those people that was etched into my mind from a very young age. I saw, I saw the Apollo mission at the age of seven. I think you were probably forty seven, fifty seven at the time. <laughs> Something for like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know he he uh, he was a a follower of the Space Nuts podcast. I don't know if you or many people know that. I didn't make a big deal of it, but um, he he. 
liked our, some of our episodes over the last couple of years. Seriously, and I, I thought that was yes, yes, I, indeed. I didn't and know I, that. I, didn't I, know I was stunned that. and wow. amazed that he'd paid us any attention at all. So you know, wow. what a great bloke. Yeah, what a great bloke. Yeah. Mm. And you know, it's a, it's sad, but he lived a long and happy life. And if I could, I'd, I'll just read a statement from his family. They say, we regret to share that our beloved father and grandfather passed away today after a valiant battle with cancer. He spent his final days peacefully with his family by his side. Mike always faced the challenges of life with grace and humility and faced this, his final challenge, in the same way. We will miss him terribly, yet we also know how lucky Mike felt to have lived the life he did. We will honour his wish for us to celebrate, not mourn that life. Please join us in fondly and joyfully remembering his sharp wit, his quiet sense of purpose and his wise perspective gained both from looking back at Earth from the vantage of space and gazing across the calm waters from the deck of his fishing boat. That's a statement from his family and I think that's lovely and I think it's a, a, a perfect way to see him out from his mortal coil and uh, I never got to meet him. I did meet Buzz Aldrin. Uh, and Buzz, of course, uh, the last of the trio that um, that went to the moon, and uh, uh, you know that uh, that most famous journey of Apollo Eleven. Yeah, what a great bloke! Yeah, indeed, and um, uh, just a footnote to that: I was listening this morning to a recording of him. Um, he was giving us a bit of a speech two years ago, so it would have been eighty-eight, mm. and you would have thought it was a man forty years younger. He was yeah. firing on all cylinders, a very, very, uh, you know, very calm, and um, it was just the same voice that he had when he was in the in the um, command module of Apollo Eleven. Quite remarkable. Mm. One of, one of my favourite stories about Michael Collins, and this is just a bit of trivia that not too many people would be aware of, although I think I have mentioned it once during our time during this podcast. He took a photograph from the module as he orbited the moon while um, Neil Armstrong and Edward Aldrin were on the surface. And the photo consisted of the moon in the foreground and the earth in the background. And at that time, it was the only photograph in history where he was the only human being not in the photo. And, you know, that's, a pretty, that's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. He yeah. took the photo of everybody else that existed in the world at the time. Yes. Except for him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that amazed me. It's, yeah, I mean, right. it's, a, it's a piece of trivia, but it yeah, is, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, it's pretty special. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, we will long remember him, of course. Let us uh, move on to our uh, questions. We've got two questions. I might just play them back to back and then we can answer them both together because they both kind of walk the same path in very different ways. Uh, these are questions from Cassandra and Ryan. So let's see what they're, uh, what they're, they're quizzing us about. Hey, all. My name's Cassandra and I am from Tennessee. It's in the United States if you're not familiar with the States. And I just have a really simple and weird question for y'all. Before I ask y'all, I do want to put forth that I am a social studies teacher, so science is not my forte, but I do love learning about space. I'm very interested in space, and I love hearing how you guys take advanced space terms and make them accessible to everyone. So my question was originally put forth by my boyfriend, who is a major space nut, and he's always asking questions that make my brain want to explode. <laughs> That's what I love about him. But he always asks me, 
if there was a car in space traveling at the speed of light, so assuming a car could survive in space and travel at the speed of light, and it turned on its headlights, would you be able to see the headlights? Let me know what y'all think about that. That is a really good question. I've heard that before. And and, uh, Cassandra, there is such a car. It's a Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, before we answer the question, we'll we'll go to Ryan because he asks something not dissimilar. G'day, guys. Love your show. Ryan here from Australia. I just want to ask a simple question, if there is such a thing. If you had two very fast rocket ships end-to-end in the vacuum of space and they both accelerated away from each other at the speed of light, but the passengers, well strapped in, of course, looking back, would they be seeing twice the speed of light? I know it's a crazy question, but I've often thought about it. So, yeah, interesting. Let us know. Cheers. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Cassandra. And, yeah, speed of light questions are are always intriguing, and I don't know which way you want to go first, but let's sort of go, okay, a car in space travelling at the speed of light, you turn the lights on. (laughs) What's going on? What what happens then? So so the the, the thing that connects these two questions, Andrew, uh, and they're they're great questions and they're the sort of thing that people do think about, Um, Mm. what connects them is that you're adding velocities, um, your so with the car headlights, uh, the car's going at it, it can't travel at the speed of light because only light can do that, but it can be very, very near the speed of light because we do that with subatomic particles. So it's traveling almost at the speed of light, turns on its headlights. That the, the light from the headlights is traveling at the speed of light. So you think, uh, okay, that to a stationary observer, the headlight, the beam from the headlights must be traveling at almost twice the speed of light. And and the Ryan's question is the opposite. If you've got two things going away from each other, uh, what is their, the speed at which they're separating? Uh, is it twice the speed of light if these two rockets are going at almost the speed of light? And the answer is no. Mm. And that's because when you when you get into relativity and relativity tells us all kinds of very strange things. Velocities or speeds don't just add the way we do in the normal world. Um, I'm very reluctant to put formulae into this podcast, but it is actually a relatively simple one. <laughs> so I'm going to throw so it in put, anyway. You're pushing the, you're pushing pushing the, the limits, limits of, I know. of adequacy, Fred. Uh, well, uh, well I, can, I can do it without it. I mean, basically, <laughs> you never, you, 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 the answer is always less than the speed of light. That's what happens. Right. So two, all right, two, two um, rockets approaching each other. Uh, you, you expect their closing speed to be twice the speed of light if they're, if they're approaching each other. But, and that works in the world where they're not going anywhere near the speed of light, uh, you know, the normal cars. But when you get to these very high speeds, relativity becomes more and more dominant. And what happens is the addition is not just a simple addition. It's not just one velocity plus the other. It's actually one velocity plus the other divided by one plus the two velocities multiplied together divided by the speed of light squared. That's the formula. Don't worry about it. But what it tells you is that, you know, supposing they're both travelling together 
uh, are closing at point nine of the speed of light if they're coming towards each other. It works the same the other direction. Um, mm. Their closing speed is actually each one's going at point nine the speed of light they're approaching. You'd expect it to be one point eight times the speed of light their closing speed, but it's not. It's point nine nine times the speed of light. It's much closer. Um, if people are interested in this and interested to see the formulae, uh, there are one or two sites on the interweb. Just check out uh, Relativistic Velocity Edition and it'll tell you all you want to know, probably more besides. Yeah, I'll, a lot yeah, I'll it, remember that. Yeah, a lot of it goes into reference frames and things like that that we don't want to worry about. But it, 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 the bottom line is that velocities don't add in the normal way. And... There's a practical demonstration of this. We know it happens. We know it works because, as you well know, the two beams of the Large Hadron Collider, which are spinning round between France and Switzerland in opposite directions at very nearly the speed of light, I think it's 0.99995% of the speed of oh, uh, times the speed of light. So they're effectively travelling the speed of light. They collide them, and the collision mm. speeds are that you know, an increased fraction of the speed of light, but it doesn't exceed it. So it okay. works. Yeah, it does, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, so, so what you're actually saying is that we should change the speed limits of cars to near the speed of light and we'll be much safer. Yeah, well, that's right, because you can never go over... It's like, you know, the speed limiter on a truck. Uh, it's the yeah, same you can't thing, exceed it. But it works in physics. You can't exceed yeah. it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's it, it's a question I've heard many times, and and mm. one that that puzzles people. And and yes, you'd think if you if you're travelling near the speed of light and you turn the lights on, that must do something. But it doesn't do anything much. So so the the, at all. the answer is yes. You'd see the headlights. Uh, you know, but mm. it, it actually depends on where you were. Clearly, if you were behind it, you wouldn't. Uh, but um, um, the you know, for an observer, a stationary observer, if I can put it that way, you'd see the headlights because the yeah. light would so, be coming to you at the speed of light. And and if we were driving towards each other at uh, 100 kilometres an hour each, our closing speed would be 200 or yeah. going apart, same effect. Yeah. But at the speed of light or near speed of light, that's yeah. cancelled out. It's not just the case. Well, it reached the it, limit. It, it gets progressively slower as you get nearer. The, the, the closing velocity gets progressively it just gets nearer and nearer to the speed of light as the two individual things approach it, but it never exceeds it. There you go, Cassandra and Ryan. Uh, you have your answer. And Cassandra, good luck explaining that to your boyfriend. <laughs> what a way to start a Thursday morning, Andrew, with, uh, yes, indeed. with relativistic yes, exactly physics. Right. Sorry mm. about that. No, that's okay. Uh, let's move on to our next question. And this one comes from Graham. Hello, Andrew and Fred. My name is Graham Murray, and I'm calling from Saltburn-by-the-Sea up on the northeast coast of Yorkshire, England. Saltburn is only 10 miles from Martin, where Captain Cook was born, and a little over 7 miles from Staithes, from where Captain Cook sailed on his voyage that discovered Australia. So in this part of the world, we're very proud of our historic attachment to Oz, and like many, I have family and friends on both coasts down there. Please could I ask you to talk about the moon, specifically the phenomenon of tidal friction? What is the link between water on the earth and lunar friction? And why only water and not, say, magma beneath the crust? I'm finding online explanations difficult to comprehend, so I'm wondering if your tried and tested communication skills will make this easier for me. I believe on one of the Apollo missions, a parabolic dish was placed on the lunar surface, and that lasers on earth can be fired at it, reflected back, enabling precise measurement of the distance between the spheres. 
This has proven that the moon is gradually becoming ever more distant from us. Apparently, back in the age of the dinosaurs, the moon would have appeared considerably larger in the sky. Most of the belief, rightly or wrongly, that the presence of the moon stabilises the Earth's rotation. If this is correct, what are the implications if the moon is becoming increasingly distant? Since discovering Space Nuts, I'm working through the back catalogue. Love everything you're doing and never miss any output, whether on podcast or YouTube. Thanks, guys, if you can help explain it all. Wonderful. Thank you, Graham. And uh, based on your question, Fred is now going to write his next book in 75 <laughs> volumes <laughs> to, answer, to answer everything you've asked. Uh, before we get to that, though, um, Graham mentioned Captain Cook, who came from that, that particular part of the world. And uh, yesterday actually was the anniversary, the 28th of April, of his um, setting foot in what he named Botany Bay. And Botany Bay is in Sydney Harbour. They tried Sydney Harbour and went, ew. And, um, or was it the other way around? Captain Phillip. It was the other way around, (laughs) Yeah. Captain Phillip went into Botany Bay after it was discovered by Captain Cook and uh, went, ew. And then went back out and went into Sydney Harbour and went, oh, this is nice. We'll stay here. Uh, what and all. Uh, but Captain Cook, uh, yeah, the anniversary yesterday of his uh, uh, discovery and setting foot in Botany Bay, he originally named it Stingray Bay for obvious reasons because it was full of stingrays. But after Joseph Banks went for a wander and went, oi, what's all this here then? Um, which is exactly how he sounds. Uh, he um, he brought back all these um, botanical uh, bits and pieces and they went, wow, this is pretty cool. We'll call it Botany Bay. Because so, they found all those amazing plants, including one that's called the Banksia, named after Joseph Banks, of course. So just a little bit of um, a connection between what uh, where Graham is from and, and why we are here in Australia at the moment. Lunar friction. Um, there's more to it than that. <laughs> are we there? Well, there's a connection. Um, I know that area very well. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was going to mention that too, but I totally forgot. But but there is another point that um, we're always at pains to make here in Australia. And forgive me, Graham, for mentioning this, but Captain Cook uh, did not discover Australia. A lot of people knew about it already. Um, I wasn't going to split hairs. No, uh, it's not splitting hairs, really, if you're one of the indigenous people who lived, you know, whose ancestors have been here for tens of thousands of years. So it's a matter of, uh, I suppose, um, uh, communities coming together rather than discovery, something like that. Yeah, and if you really do want to split hairs, which I'm going to do now, uh, the (laughs) first Europeans to discover Australia were actually, uh, was it uh, the Portuguese or the Dutch? It was the Dutch, yeah. It was the Dutch, yes, I thought so. so. They explained to my wife, she's Dutch. Yes. Uh, But yes... um, yeah, yeah. A lot of anyway. people found it, and in fact, and in fact, here's another piece of trivia: uh, when when the Sorry first fleet arrived, <laughs> when it, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. When the first fleet arrived in 1788, there were two French warships off the coast. Yes, there you go. They were here going, "Oi, this is ours. You leave." <laughs> Terrible French accent. I think it turned into Spanish somewhere along the way. They might have been here too. Um, now, lunar friction. <laughs> So I've forgotten the question. No, I haven't. It's okay. Um, (laughs) Look, uh, Graham, the the main thing is, uh, and you kind of put your finger on it uh, in your question, why only water? Well, and and why not say magma beneath the crust? And it is. It's everything. The tides actually uh, pull everything around. So the surface of the earth moves twice a day, 
by something like a foot on average. Uh, it varies from place to place. Uh, so it's not just the tides going up and down. We are going up that's and down why, as that's well. That's why I miss those crucial putts. Yeah, it's the movement. <laughs> it's tidal friction. That's what it is. Yeah, that's right. The, the ground's changing under your feet. Fortunately, it's slow enough that we don't get earthquakes. But but that's and and that's what is also happening on the moon. And that's really the mm. connection. That's where tidal friction comes from. Uh, because um, as the tides raised on the moon by the Earth shift the moon's surface by a small amount, basically that's causing a loss of energy. It's, uh, it, that's what's stripping the energy from the Earth's rotation. Uh, the uh, that uh, it, that's why we need leap seconds because the Earth is gradually, very gradually slowing down. It's about one millisecond, maybe a little bit more than that per day per century so it's a very slow effect but it, if you don't do anything about it with atomic clocks everything gets out of kilter and before you know where you are you're celebrating uh, equinoxes and solstices in completely the wrong times of year so uh, that's the earth slowdown and it, it's actually um, uh, the uh, the same effect the same phenomenon that is giving rise to this gradual drift of the moon away from the uh, away from the Earth's surface. And actually, uh, those reflectors that you mentioned, Graham, they are what are called corner cube reflectors. And I think the first three missions, maybe more than that, placed them on the lunar surface. It wasn't just um, one of the Apollo missions. These are banks of reflectors, a lot like the old cat's eyes that we used to have um, in the middle of the road. Uh, and what they do is send beams of light exactly back from the direction in which they came. Uh, so they've got a 180 degree reversal of the direction. And that means if you shine a laser towards them, you get your laser beam coming back. And um, modern technology lets you time the flight of the laser beam, which is why we know the distance to the moon with an accuracy of about one centimetre. It's extraordinary, totally extraordinary. Um, and that's how we know that I think it's 3.54 centimetres per year is the drift away from the Earth by the moon, which <clears throat> all... Um, leads to eventually the, the two stabilizing the the uh, absolutely you know the end product of all this is that the moon will wind up about uh, half a million kilometers away from the earth rather than it's 380 kilometers thousand kilometers that it is now and the two uh, worlds will always face one another just as the moon faces the earth with the same face all the time the same will be true of the earth this is in maybe 10 maybe 20 maybe 40 billion years it's a long a long way away and actually other things will happen before that but that's never mind um there was I've, one other I've thing set, i've set an alarm on my watch <laughs> very good well, you might want to do one for the collision of the, uh, you know, the Andromeda galaxy with ours yeah, and yeah. the sun turning All, into a red giant. Already covered. Already covered. Good. Okay. Um, so yes, the, that that proves the moon. We know the moon's drifting away, and exactly as you said, in the age of the dinosaurs, it was a bit bigger. That's sixty-six million years ago. Um, so the uh, final, uh, let me just uh, digress for a minute to, to explain why the moon is moving away by the same process. And what happens is that um, it comes about because the Earth's rotation is in the same direction as the moon's orbit. And these things all, they're all, everything's going anti-clockwise from above the northern North Pole, seen from above the North Pole. 
So the Earth's rotating, and that carries what we call the tidal bulge around with it, um, and that's the, the the bulge in the oceans and the crust of the Earth uh, that's caused by the Moon's gravity. So that's slightly offset from the direction of the Moon, and. What that does is it gives the moon itself a slight gravitational tug, which increases its velocity slightly. And if you increase the velocity of a spacecraft, what happens is you move away from the object you're in orbit around. And that's why the moon's drifting off. Um, okay. The final bit is, uh, yes, the... Um, that we do, do believe that the fact that the moon is there is one of the things that stabilise the Earth's rotation. And that will continue, I think, even when the two reach their equilibrium point in all these billions of years where each is facing the other. The moon will still be there. It's not going to vanish altogether. It will not be big enough to cause total eclipses of the sun, however. It will be significantly smaller in the sky than it appears now, which is a rather curious phenomenon, the fact that... Yes, it's just... Coincidental that we can observe. We can it at see this point them exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely. It's a lovely effect too, and we get to witness it here in 2028. There's going yes. to be a full uh, eclipse, uh, which will see a shadow run right across the north from the northwest of New South Wales, straight over us where I am now. Total blackout, and uh, Sydney. Sydney will get blacked out as well in 2028. Mm. Graham, thanks for your question. Uh, great one, uh, and you are listening to. Episode 250 of the Space Nuts podcast. Space Nuts. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. And a big hello to our patrons, the people who've been supporting us with a, a couple of dollars a month to keep the vessel afloat, the HMS Endeavour, as we try. That, that was Captain Cook's ship, Cook's ship by the way, uh, as we try to um, pass on valuable information in a language that you can understand adequately. Uh, but to uh, our patrons, thank you. Uh, whatever way you support us financially, it's it's certainly appreciated. And if you want to go to patreon.com slash space nuts, you can see how it's all done. Or go to our website, uh, website spacenutspodcast.com and clip up, click on the subscribe button to find out how you can... Uh, assist us. We're we're aiming to become 100% supported by our patrons. And of course, we need to get the numbers up. So if you would like to become a patron, it's not expensive. Uh, and you can choose uh, your poison, basically. Uh, but as I've said many, many times, it's not mandatory. So please don't think we are going to make you do this. That's not how it works. It's a volunteer thing. But to those many uh, who have already done so, it's greatly appreciated. So, Fred, let's move on to our next question. Uh, this comes from Paddy and Alyssa. G'day, Fred and Andrew. Paddy here again. My daughter is here with me, um, and she asks about rainbows through glass because each time we get home from work, or I get home from work, Alyssa always points out the rainbow on the driveway, and I said to her, it's a light spectrum, I think, Um dividing the light into different colours, so the rainbow, and then she says, no, it's not. It's There's a leprechaun. We have to find the leprechaun at the end of the rainbow, and there's a gold. And I'm like, oh, okay, rodeo. So what makes a rainbow, and can you explain it to my daughter, Alyssa? Thank you, and may the force be with you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you, Patty, and uh, hello, Alyssa, and I'm all on your side in regard to the leprechaun and the pot of gold. I do believe it, and uh, I haven't found it yet because y y 
you can't get to a rainbow because the more you try to get to it, the further away it gets. It just <clears throat> it's one of those strange. It's one of those things that they just do to us to make us frustrated. I think. But uh, yeah, we had a recent question, Fred, about uh, rainbows from a. I think it was a bus driver who uh, noticed at certain times in the day it was coming through the edge of his his window and creating this incredible effect on the dashboard. And from time to time, you do see them. I've seen them with the garden, uh, the, yeah. you know, the, the sprinkler system in the garden sometimes. It's um, it's a lovely effect. But, um, yeah, I guess we can educate Alyssa a bit in terms of what's going on. <laughs> well, you can. I'll just sit here and look pretty. <laughs> well, thank God one of us can. Um, <laughs> the... the um, well, you know, seeing them in the garden is lovely. And I, this is something I don't tell many people. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that uh, you probably shouldn't tell many people. But when I'm in the shower, um, between about uh, October and March, I can see rainbows in the shower. Uh, oh, wow. Just from the shower spray. Because um, there's the window in our shower faces east. Uh, and uh, it's just at certain times, those certain times of the year, the sun is uh, high enough in the sky or in the right position in the sky to to shine on the on the, the you know the droplets of water coming from the shower, and they make a rainbow. You've got to look hard for it though, but it is there, yeah. and that's telling you exactly how rainbows are formed. Um, it's billions of raindrops, uh, and the sunlight passing through them actually is split up into the colours of the rainbow, the spectrum, exactly as Paddy says, uh, and uh, reflected back to us. It, it's um, uh, re really interesting. What's happening in, East, in each raindrop, Andrew, is that um, the light is going into the raindrop. Uh, it's being refracted. That means bent by the surface, front surface of the raindrop. Then it reflects off the back surface of the raindrop, comes out, of more or less the same side that it went in, uh, but at a slightly different angle. And the end result of that is that the, the light is bent actually through an angle of 138 degrees, which means that if you're standing with the sun behind you, uh, what you're seeing is light that's actually coming from, from uh, at an angle of 42, um, 42 degrees to the, um, basically to the, 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 the direction of the sun it, where the sun would be if um, I'm, get, I'm getting, you know, I'm not putting this well at all. It's what technically is what we call the anti-solar the anti -solar point is the point directly opposite the sun. And it's 42 degrees to the anti-solar point. So what you get is this arc of light centred on the anti-solar point, the point directly opposite the sun. And it's caused by all these gazillions of raindrops bending light through this 138-degree angle and splitting mm. them into the colours. A, a, a very, very complex uh, account. But the bottom line is, exactly as you've said, in a sense, a rainbow is an optical illusion uh, because as you move, the rainbow moves with you. You know, if you went to, to towards one end of the rainbow to dig up the pot of gold, and we used to believe there was a pot of gold at the end of it as well. Um, I didn't the know rainbow... there was digging involved. I, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, you've got to dig. Man manual labour should not be required. No, in Yorkshire, you had to dig for everything. It didn't matter what it was. You had to do something. Aye, by gum. You couldn't just go there and pick it up, you know. Um, so uh, the... <laughs> The, um, the the rainbow, you know, you 
okay, you head, you head towards the end of it where you think the pot of gold is and the rainbow just goes with you because it's this mm. kind of optical illusion. It's always this 42-degree arc in the sky. They're delightful things. Honestly, I think okay. um, rainbows are completely magical uh, and I look out for them whenever I can see them, especially in the shower. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question of you uh, in addition to what Paddy and Alyssa have brought up, uh, good, good. are rainbows unique to Earth or no. could they exist on <laughs> other planets? And here's another sort of side question to that question. Yeah. Let's say you're on a planet where it's raining and it's a blue giant star rather than the colour of our star. Would the rainbow be different? Yeah. Um, and look, uh, you've hit a point there i you know the kids book that i've been working on um the uh, it's gone it's going through the editing at the moment and the, i had a little feature on alien rainbows exactly what you're asking about oh and about uh, yeah except uh, that the publisher says we haven't got room for this oh no <laughs> should cut it out so it's going i'm afraid um i might try and sneak it and mention in somewhere else because it is a lovely topic um I might, in fact, I've worked out how to do it, and I'll change it and, um, and make it shorter rather than make it a, um, a, you know, as long a feature as it was. But the answer is yes, Andrew. And one place where even in the solar system there might be rainbows um, is is Titan, uh, oh, Saturn's moon Titan, because Titan has a water cycle similar to the Earth, except it's not water; it's hydrocarbons; it's liquid natural gas. Um, but there are probably, uh, we expect, well, we know because we see clouds. Uh, we believe that we would, you would see clouds of droplets of liquid methane, ethane, which is what it is, in the atmosphere. And that um, would give you rainbows. Uh, they wouldn't be as colourful as here on Earth because, as you know, Titan is covered with this smoggy atmosphere, uh, which is like an orange fog. So mm. a lot of the blue light would be taken out. So y your rainbow would look predominantly orange, basically. Uh, and it's a, d a different angle as well. If I remember rightly, it's 48 degrees, the, the radius of a methane rainbow, rather than the 42 degrees, the radius of a water rainbow. So, yeah, they, they'll, they'll happen. Uh, one of my colleagues, just as a, a final footnote to this, uh, um, one of my colleagues from the University of New South Wales is and the group that he leads, uh, they, Jeremy Bailey is his name. He's a very senior and extremely expert astrobiologist. He and his colleagues are looking for the signature of rainbows on other planets beyond the solar system, and you do it by oh. looking for the polarization of the light rather than, uh, you know, rather than um, looking looking for the arc of light. If you see, because uh, rainbows are highly polarized. Uh, if you look at a rainbow here on Earth through polarising sunglasses, turn your head around, you'll find an angle where it disappears altogether because the light's Is that polarized. right? I'll yeah. try that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of books, Fred. Yes. My brother, my clever brother, has, has come up with this. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, oh, that's the, the one. That's, that's the cover. Yeah, that's oh, the cover. Yeah, look put at it in the right place. That's I the cover it. of my new book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's done a great job. Um, and that'll be out next month. I've just decided to fast track it and get it out there because, you know, why wait? Yeah. And I don't have to go through all the rigmarole of editing and, and convincing publishers I shouldn't shouldn't put certain photos in the book. I'll just do it myself. Um, 
But uh, thanks again to Patty and Alyssa uh, for the Rainbow's question. Let's move on to a question now from Ralph. Andrew and Dr. Fred Watson. So this is what it feels like to be near a star. We wake up in the morning, it's daylight, and we take it for granted. We walk outside and see sunlight beaming everywhere, reflecting everywhere, and we feel its warmth on our skin. But what this really is is energy rocketing at us from our nearby star. We're exposed to it directly for half of our rotation and are shielded from it during the other half. So this is what it feels like to exist near a star. We look out in the night sky and see billions of other stars, but we're told the universe is mostly space and emptiness. Our only experience is what it feels like to be in the neighborhood of a star. So what's it like to be out in the middle of nowhere, not anywhere near any stars? Is it simply cold and dark and nothingness, or are there faint wisps of energy from nearby galaxies or dark energy affecting that space or gravity? Is there anything? We take our existence here for granted so much, I'm just wondering what the opposite would be like, not in the neighborhood of a star. Keep it up, Chief Nuts. Love the podcast, as always. This is Ralph in Northern California, and thank you. No worries, Ralph. Thank you very much. Um, there'd be no rainbows, I no. don't imagine, unless you no. created one yourself. Yep. I think it'd be pretty cold and dark, and uh, it'd be um, yeah, pretty boring, too, I think. <laughs> it's interesting. And um, I do have the answer. And actually, you upstaged me a bit there, because what I was oh. going to do was put this up in front of the camera... <laughs> Exploring stars and invisible planets. Exploding stars, yeah. It's the it's the, oh, it's the US Exploring. edition of um, what's called Cosmic Chronicles here in Australia. Mm. And the reason I've, uh, I grabbed it before we started, because I knew this question was coming up, is because that is exactly how the book starts. It starts with a typical place in space. And I'm going to, since I've done it already, I'm going to read uh, yes. the beginning of the book. Uh, in fact, I might read the first two paragraphs, if that's all right. <laughs> this is Yeah, fine. This is going to be interesting because Fred has to read his own writing. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Sorry. Okay, suppose you, you could come with me to a place that is typical of the universe, a location that experiences the average conditions found throughout the whole of space. Where would we be? On the surface of an alien planet, perhaps, luxuriating among exotic plants and strange, colourful creatures or close to the brilliant churning atmosphere of a hot star with tortuous magnetic fields funneling lethal bursts of plasma towards us. Oh, what writing. Falling into a black hole, perhaps, or just nowhere. And it's the last of these that is closest to the truth. A typical place in the universe is empty, cold and dark, and nothing in our experience can quantify just how empty, cold and dark it is. If you're lucky, you might find one atom of hydrogen in the volume of space normally taken up by 15 adults, a cubic metre. The temperature you'd experience is 2.7 degrees above absolute zero or minus 270 degrees Celsius. That is cold. And to your unaided eyes, the darkness is complete. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave you here. And you've got to read the rest of the book to find out what... <laughs> what everything else is like so it is yeah. um, the typical universe place in the universe there's essentially nothing there's a, the odd hydrogen atom there's mm -hmm. probably dark matter though 
which we can't experience um, you know, in any other way than through its gravitational attraction when it gets to large numbers. But we know dark matter outweighs normal matter by five to one. So that means you might find five atoms of dark matter, whatever it is, in that one cubic metre of, of space, the average space between the between the galaxies. Extraordinary. Ralph, so you've, yeah, yeah, it is. Ralph's opened a can of worms, but it's okay. There's nothing in it. There's nothing. So, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great question, though. Really good question, and uh, I, I kind of figured that's where we'd we'd go with that one. Yes, <laughs> uh, a typical a typical piece of the universe is is basically nothing. Just nothing. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's um, kind of like my scorecard after a round of golf. Nothing, nothing <laughs> to write home about. Uh, thank you, Ralph. Appreciate it. And uh, we will take a little break and come back with our uh, last two questions on this episode 250 of the Space Nuts podcast. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us and uh, hope you're enjoying this, the latest episode of Space Nuts, episode 250. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're trying to build up our patron numbers to try and self-support the, the podcast, and that's great if you can do that. But if you want to support us in another way, go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, click on the shop link and maybe buy yourself a, a T-shirt or a polo shirt or a cap or a cup or a mug. I don't know what the difference is between the cup and the mug. They look the same to me. But anyway, there they are. Uh, but there's a little tab on the left. This is sort of following on from something Fred just showed you if you're watching on YouTube. It's got books and they're all in there, uh, all sorts of books uh, that um, have been uh, put in there. There's uh, Star Craving Mad by Fred Watson. There's Exploding Stars in Invisible Planets by Fred Watson. Uh, and uh, a couple of other books that uh, by some uh, virtually unknown author uh, who shall remain nameless. But uh, they're all there. Uh, or you can um, you know, just check out our catalogue as well. It's all on spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, click on the shop link to see what's what. We can even sell you a couple of stickers. They're cheap as chips. So um, check it all out. Uh, you can support us that way if you sort of don't want to go as far as becoming a patron. So that's an option as well. Now, Fred, uh, two more questions to bump off before we call it quits on this episode. And we, I love this question mainly because I am currently watching this TV series. This is a question from Andrew. Hey guys, this is uh, Andrew in Victoria, BC. Um, I have a question about uh, the TV show For All Mankind, um, specifically season two, episode one. Um, there is a part of that episode where a coronal mass ejection occurs and uh, the astronauts on the moon have to basically run to safety. Um, a lot of them get underground uh, or in lava tubes, um, but you you notice a part where the regolith or the sand on the moon is actually elevating from the surface kind of in wave-like fashion. Um, it was quite a sight. I'm just wondering if that's scientifically accurate and if that's something that would typically occur during a coronal mass ejection. Uh, I love the show and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Andrew, and hope all is well in British Columbia. I Watch this series, Fred. I've been, uh, I was put on to it by uh, a friend of mine, and I've uh, watched, uh, I think we're into season two, or is it season three? I think it's season two. Uh, and 
it, it's based on the premise that it's one of those uh, alternative history series. They made one uh, where the Germans and Japanese had won the war. That was a great series. I've watched all of that. Uh, this one's based on the premise that the Russians get to the moon first. They are the first to set foot on the moon. It freaks the Americans out and the space race changes. So the Americans think, okay, well, they stepped there first, but we'll put the first base on the moon. The Russians have got the same idea and they put a base on the moon and then they start thinking, well, we need resources. So they start mining the moon. But the Russians say, well, we're going to do that too. So we'll take your mine and then they have to fight to get their mind back, and it, it's really fascinating. I think at the current stage, they're in into the 80s. Ronald Reagan is president. Uh, the Americans got a base on the moon, and yes, in this particular episode, to start off the latest season, they detect the coronal mass ejection, which is headed straight for the, uh, the surface of the moon, where the base is and where the Russians are, for that matter. And the, um, the astronauts are all exposed, about 11 of them, I think, uh, on the surface in their suits. They were actually going to watch the sunrise uh, because it was so spectacular, and the coronal mass ejection was minutes away and they had to find cover. Now, as a part of the effect when the uh, coronal mass ejection hits the surface, the lunar regolith, the surface of the moon, ripples like um, like when you vibrate a dish that's got water in it, you get that ripply effect. That's what happened. And Andrew is, of course, wondering uh, if that would be real. Now, as a journalist, I never let the truth get in, in the way of a good story, or as a science fiction writer anyway. But, um, yeah, I wondered the same thing. Uh, I th- yeah, it's a. <laughs> I haven't seen the series, I haven't seen the episode. but It's fabulous. Uh, yeah, you, you, we were speaking about it earlier, and uh, it's very tempting. Mm. If ever I get time to watch TV, I'll watch it. Um, <laughs> the um, and the answer is that it is probably based on fact because the lunar regolith, the lunar soil, is is very very fine. It's finer than talcum powder, and mm. um, it reacts to electrical charges. Uh, and so we know that from observations made by Apollo astronauts. I think it was Apollo 17. There's a very famous sketch of looking at the limb of the moon, the edge of the moon from orbit. This is from orbit around, so it's put from the command module. You can find it on, it's probably on Wikipedia, I think. Uh, you've, the, 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 the sketch shows the, um, the, 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 the limb of the moon, the horizon of the moon, just before the sun comes up. So the sun's illuminating from just below the horizon. And all these clouds of material are visible. There are, there are, there's, there's a sort of haze around it. Now, the, sun, the, the moon does not have an atmosphere, so it's not an atmospheric effect. And that led to this understanding of something called the levitation of the lunar regolith. And I think that's there's probably a Wikipedia article on that as well. So a levitation of the lunar regolith means that just under the normal solar wind, that you know, the, the, the normal effect of the subatomic particles coming from the sun, it charges up the lunar soil so that the particles of soil repel each other. They become charged like charges repel. Uh, and essentially float above the above the surface. It was not visible to the 
astronauts on the moon, standing on the moon, they couldn't see this effect happening. But when you see it from space where there's probably a large clouds of this dust being back illuminated by the sun, then it became visible. So it's, uh, it's a really good suggestion that if you have a really intense uh, dumping of charged particles onto the moon's surface from a coronal, coronal mass ejection on the sun, a plasma basically being burst out of the, uh, of the sun's photosphere, the surface that we see, um, you, you might well get an effect like that. I'd, I'd love to see the special effect. I'll try and look it out, actually. If oh, I it's really good. Time. Yeah. It's really good. Um, what, they, what they can do these days is stunning. Yeah, uh, but um, but it, it it could be possible. Um, and maybe one day we'll find out with cameras on the moon. Yeah. I, I've actually found the photo you're referring to. I just did uh, a Google search for levitation of the lunar regolith. Okay, and then clicked yeah. on clicked on images, and there are quite a few photos okay. of yeah. the effect or demonstrating the effect. So yes, you can find it quite easily. Good. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you if you were interested in that series, it's on Apple TV. And uh, yeah, there's been, um, I'm pretty sure it's, I'm not sure if it's season two or season three, but uh, it's so good. Yeah, I, I'm way behind. I've got some catching up to do, but uh, it's, uh, it's a really well thought out and clever alternative history storyline that uh, just keeps you wondering where they're going with this. How can this? How is this going to end? And uh, I, I suppose if I want to just be a real nitpicker, uh, some of the movements that they've tried to replicate of the astronauts on the surface are a little bit iffy. But especially when they're walking around inside their um, uh, their quarters, they suddenly look like they're in their own bedrooms because they seem to be moving quite normally. But they're not in spacesuits, so. I guess you'd have to wonder. Well, maybe that's how you know. Maybe that's how they do walk on the moon. But um, they seem to have been be, have become much more sure-footed compared to the <laughs> Apollo astronauts as well, because they fell over at a rate of knots. But uh, yeah, uh, great question, Andrew, and and probably some fact to it of some kind. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay, let's move on to our final question for this episode two hundred and fifty. Have I told you it's episode 250? It's Ooh, episode 250, just in case you were wondering. Uh, this is a question uh, from another part of Canada. Hello, uh, Andrew and Fred. My name is Mark. I'm recording from the uh, city of Sherbrooke in the province of Quebec in Canada. Now, um, if we want to send a mission to Mars, we have to wait for the uh, correct launch window because of the orbit of the planets, right? Now, does the same logic apply if or when we want to send a probe uh, towards Proxima Centauri? Or can we just aim for the shiny little dot and just go straight ahead? Uh, love the podcast. And please, space nuts around the globe, please support the show if you can. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for the boost as well. Uh, I would think when you're going long haul, it wouldn't matter. But... I, I'm willing to be corrected on that because I don't know anything. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right, Andrew. <laughs> uh, the dis, you know, the, the reason why we need we have these launch windows with Mars is uh, to give us the minimum energy transfer time between uh, the Earth and Mars. Um, if you had, uh, if if you if you had rockets that 
you know, if you basically could put whatever thrust you you want, rather than realistic considerations of fuel and uh, things of that sort, if you could just zap your rocket up to any speed you want, the, the launch windows broaden, they, they get much wider. Um, and in a way, when you're thinking about Proxima Centauri, I mean, you know, sending a conventional rocket to Proxima Centauri is a non-starter because it takes you 60,000 years to get there because it's so far. Yeah. Um, and the Petrol only price would go up too much. <laughs> it would. The only practical way to think about it is that, you know, what, what they're looking at with break, the, what's it called, Breakthrough Starshot, the uh, mm. um, feasibility study for whether you could uh, use a, a light sail uh, to accelerate a spacecraft to nearly the speed of light and do it in a lot less time. Um, but even then, you're talking about a journey time. Okay, so it's if you were accelerating up to a, a third of the speed of light or something like that, you're talking about maybe 13, 14, 15 years to travel time to take into account the accelerations and things. Um, that is a long enough period of time um, that there have probably been uh, several orbits of the planets of Proxima uh, in that meantime. And, you know, um, we still don't, we, we can't actually see these planets directly. So we don't know whereabouts they are in their orbits. We've just got the, the t times that they, um, that they transit or, or that they pass in front of the, in front of the star. We can tell from the the wobble of the star where about roughly whereabouts they are. Um, I, mm. I guess what you'd be talking about, uh, just you know, suppose yes, there is a spacecraft on its way there. You do what they do with long haul flights within the solar system. You make mid mid um, cruise uh, mid, mid cruise maneuvers. You you basically tweak the orbit that you're in. Um, by doing course corrections, and and you do that as you were approaching uh, Proxima, so that you brought yourself in the best position to, to to have your cameras photographing the planets as you whiz by them, because there's no chance whatsoever of slowing down to go into orbit. It's a bit like um, when Arakoth, which we used to call Ultima Thule or Ultima Thule, uh, that object's uh, photographed by New Horizons. The uh, New Horizons orbit, um, its pathway, its trajectory in space was tweaked in order to bring it within photographing range of Arakoth. Um, yep. So in the, what was it? It's 2019, I think. So four years after the flyby of Pluto, the orbit was tweaked very soon after the flyby of Pluto uh, to bring um, uh, Ultima Thule, as it was then called, into, into range. So, yeah, mm. that's how you do it. So, no, you don't need to worry about windows. You just you chuck just it out there and hope for the best. <laughs> yes, fast as you and can. And we'll see you in 30 years and hope, <laughs> hope it works. That's right. But, uh, yeah, thanks for your question, Mark, and thanks to everybody who contributed to episode 250. We got a whole swag of questions, so we've got a little bit to work with going forward. Uh, thank you to the, those people as well. If you didn't get on this episode, um, listen in for a future episode. We, we might get to it then. Uh, one more thing before we finish up, Fred, Ingenuity flight number three has been successful. Indeed, as we've news. seen... Uh, images from the from the helicopter, colour images, uh, not only of the tyre tracks of Perseverance, which is what we saw from uh, Flight 2, but Flight 3 has revealed the Perseverance rover itself, uh, some 
80 meters away or something like that uh, in the in the corner of the field of view of the um, ingenuity's camera so exciting stuff and in fact i'm not sure where we are with the status of flight four um, it may even even have happened already uh, but i mm. will follow up on that and make sure i don't think it has but i think it's due very soon Yes, I think they planned five test flights, wasn't it? It's five test flights, that's right. And four and five were going to be much more adventurous, so um, mm. they might still be thinking about where to go. Yeah, I think with um, flight number five, they're planning to deliver some pizza, so that, that'll that be a real achievement if they can do that. I thought, I thought it was uh, a book or something. Can't wait. No, not pizza, anyway. Actually, I read today... Speaking of drones and helicopters, um, Girl Scouts in the United States, are going, uh, because of COVID, they can't do the normal door knock to sell cookies or sit out front of supermarkets. Uh, one lot's going to use drones to deliver cookies. Great <laughs> That's stuff. great. Yeah, It's awesome. Uh, just a side note. Uh, thanks again to everybody who contributed. Thanks for listening into episode 250. Don't forget to tell your friends. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube. Um, spread the word. If, if you um, get our notifications on Facebook, please share them to all your friends. Uh, we want to pick up more and more and more listeners. We want to keep this happy ship flying through space for as long as possible. Uh, and Fred, thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a joy as, as always, but uh, nice to reach a, a significant milestone as, uh, as this 250. Not many cricketers get to get a score like that, so I feel rather privileged. Uh, Indeed, but, yeah, thank you. That's right. Thanks, so, at all, as always. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and in case any any of our viewers are wondering whether we coordinate our shirts before we start recording <laughs> these things, the answer is no. Again. No, it, it just happens by accident, folks. <laughs> yeah. I, I even decided to wear a different coloured jumper, but yeah, um, yeah, we're almost like, matched in that yeah. regard as well. But, yeah. Extraordinary. Thank you, Andrew. We need, always good to we talk. We probably need to talk about this. <laughs> Maybe we <No>. do. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, see you next time. Thanks, Fred. Take care. All bye right. Bye. See you soon. <laughs> Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And thanks again for supporting the Space Nuts podcast. And thanks to uh, Hugh back in the studio for putting everything together. And we'll join you again next week for another episode of the Space Nuts podcast. See you then. Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.